Good morning, you beautiful people. Good morning, indeed. This is Hayden. And this is David. And this is uh, Caffeinated Theology. We're working on another title, actually. We've got some big things coming your way. Very big things. Yeah, so it's been a while. It um, really has. I think I, I looked at the episodes the last time we recorded and did a podcast was March 14th. Wow. Which was literally right when... The coronavirus. Coronavirus. Carolina. Pandemic began. Um, so a lot has changed in that time. So before we kind of get going on with the podcast, um, what's new with you, David? Oh, a lot is new. Um, well, very new. We just got a new dog yesterday. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's right here. Yep. She's right Everybody here. meet her. Chilling with us. Her name is Clarabelle Shalom, a.k.a. Clara. And we just kind of spur the moment got her yesterday. And she's been fun so far. Really, we've just been doing a lot of the same old, same old, as far as, like, work stuff. Just kind of building and expanding on what we've been doing with, like, you know, the coffee shop business and then with uh, Christian's dance work. Um, just kind of growing and expanding. So it's been a, a really good past few months. Like, a lot has, has grown for us. So I feel like in this next year, there'll be a lot, like, new stuff that we get to add. Mm. Yeah, so this is the first time we're recording outside of the coffee shop, actually. That's right, yeah. We've done them all before in the shop. Yep, so we're we're actually sitting in my living room right now, but we do have some coffee. Cheers. Cheers. No worries, we will remain caffeinated as we speak. <laughs> That's a plan. Yeah, so uh, we figured it was time to get back. David's got a little more time on his hands now. And, yes. Uh, We've decided to be exercise boys, so we get up and run in the morning, and then um, we bring this podcast to you. So, if you were to describe what our goal was with this podcast, just because it's been a while, David, how would you describe what we're trying to do here? Basically, we're trying to read through the Hebrew Bible, but strip away our modern Western ideas and that kind of filter that we filter it through, and just get back to kind of understand if we were an ancient person living in, you know, I guess like post-exile Israel or exile Israel who was reading these texts, like the people who these texts were written for, how would they read it and trying to understand them through that lens? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's probably the best way to explain it. Yeah. And it, it won't be just the Hebrew Bible. The goal is to probably make it through second temple literature as well as the new Testament. Yeah. Um, probably. And, and the whole concept is going to be, can we, I mean, we're, we're dealing with thousands and thousands of years of interpretations at this point. And so, uh, I mean, I have enough humility to say that, like, we're not going to attack this perfectly. Yeah, or, of course. Or, uh, there's no way that we, completely, that we can completely shut off our modern interpretations of things. But I think it's a good thought exercise to try. Yeah, totally. It's going to be fun. And, of course, like, you know, there are things in these texts that, like, are principles or metaphors that applied to us but trying to uh just like really understand the people that they were written for at the specific time in history when they were like put together how would they view these things correct you okay okay clara clara decided to join us today that's our uh, our third host yeah so we usually do a three-minute recap, um, but since it's been a while, I didn't want to throw that completely on David. Instead, I wanted to maybe take like five minutes and us just kind of talk through the big, vast landscape of what we've covered so far. Yeah. Um, and so I think the big things that we talked about was um, Genesis 1, creation of the cosmos, was more about Yahweh not so much creating something out of nothing, but taking um, non-order Mm-hmm. And giving it order. Yeah. Which pertain to taking these things that had no function and giving them function. Yeah. So when he says, let there be light, and he called the light day, and he called the darkness night, he's more assigning time than he is creating light and darkness. Yeah, totally. And not, like, so much a step-by-step, like, this is step one of how Yahweh made the earth, and step two of... But, like, just the story is showing how... He brought order mm-hmm. and is holding back chaos. Mm-hmm. And then Genesis 2, we've got the story of, of Adam, mm-hmm. the human one, in, in the garden. And we kind of made the point that um, the, the Garden of Eden 
was kind of the cosmic temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and temple was the place that would hold the divine presence. And that Adam and then later Eve, the man and the woman, we, that's what we tended to call them. We didn't call them Adam and Eve very much in the, in the podcast. I don't remember. Yeah, I remember that. Um, they're, they were like the priests yeah. of, of the temple. And so um, there was a lot of different ways to look at that. It could be they were the only two humans on earth. It could have been they were the only two humans chosen for the garden. Right. But in the story, they are placed in the garden. Which the whole world was not the garden. Right. So there's like this world that has this kind of chaos, disorder, and the role of the, like God created order within the garden. And the idea was that the humans would be the image of God mm-hmm. to then spread that order into the rest of the world and to like do what God did in the creation, which is uh, bringing order to chaos and going out and continuing that until it's like the whole creation just filled with the glory of God. Correct. And then they were given one rule. That rule was not to eat from the tree of life. And we that was a really interesting conversation. Of, yeah. Um, I kind of came to the conclusion, based mostly off of this wonderful book by John Walton, that um, humans weren't created immortal. Right. I remember that. And that the tree of life was the symbol of um, relationship to God's wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that they would be able to eat from the tree of life at some... Wait, no, it was the tree of good and bad. They were able to eat from the tree of life. It was the tree so of the knowledge of good and so bad. So there was two trees, and then they were able to eat from the tree of life, thus sustaining immortality. They were told not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, yet. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they were told they were going to die. So, and then we have get the serpent, which, as far as the ancient Israelites were concerned, was not our modern conception of the devil. Right. I mean, it probably was, they would have just imagined a serpent, yeah. like a snake talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, a chaos monster. Yeah. Um, who, by telling um, the humans that they wouldn't die when they ate the tree, and he, he technically told the truth, but he also technically lied. <laughs> yeah, because it was a, a twisting mm-hmm. of, of the words. Because they didn't die immediately when they ate it. Right. Well, and then it's like, well, what, what kind of death were, was Yahweh talking about? Like, was it a physical death that they were going to just, like, fall dead after they ate the tree? And I kind of see it more as, like, it's a death in the sense that they, before eating of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, were in this state of, like, trueness to their created identity and, like, knowing their creator. And their life was just, like, connected to the creator. But then... I see the knowledge of good and evil as like taking matters into your own hands of like, we're going to define what is good and evil. We are going to be the ones mm-hmm. to decide that. And so they died in the sense that they lost their true identity because they lost their connection to the creator that they had. And so they died in that sense. And they're kicked out of the garden, therefore not having access to the tree of life again. Mm-hmm. Again, whether that's literal or, or, or metaphor, the, the concept rings true either way yeah um and so they're kicked out they move to the east that's a concept that we're going to keep seeing when somebody goes east in genesis that's usually not a good thing right um you get the cain and abel story violence bloodshed first murder um cain builds this great city um and then you just see this downward spiral of humanity just continue like humans get more and more violent and we keep seeing the motif of god swooping in giving them a chance and then things going bad again and he'll continually call another person out yeah. so then you have noah which means rest he calls mm-hmm. noah to build the ark wipes out humanity establishes a covenant with noah um but then what do humans do again <laughs> right just immediately take things into their own hands and mess it up and so you get this like it's kind of like this waves of god establishing something or pointing out a person where you think like okay like Order's going to be restored and, like, the thing's going to be good. And then humans mess it up. And then another human comes and you're like, oh, like, Noah, his name is Relief. He's going to bring relief to the world. But then, like, things get bad again. So it's, you're kind of riding this, these waves of, like, realizing a pattern that is going to be so important in the story of Israel. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, is this going to be the, the person or people to save the world? And then it's like, well, no, they messed up. <laughs> 
Yeah, because because out of Noah's family comes the Tower of Babel, which was kind of one of the last stories that we talked about. Yeah, which um, I think is a pretty direct allusion to the city of Babylon of the ancient Israelites. Time. Totally. Yeah, it just represents like the hyper organized state of people running a governmental system completely devoid of any like relation to their creator mm-hmm. and just like we can do this our- ourselves mm-hmm. we can be the judge of good and evil we can establish order in the world and it just ends up in chaos yeah so narratively god comes down sees the city and destroys it and disperses the people mm-hmm. and so that's how the bible explains why we have different people groups who speak different languages right yeah. but out of that story comes a man named abram mm-hmm um, who was actually from Babylon, um, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is the same. It's the it's relatives to to Babylon. Um, seemingly insignificant person, but God says, "Hey, leave your home, trek to this land that I'm going to give you." And we don't give a whole lot of information. We're just told that Abraham. Abram. I'm not going to call him Abraham yet. Yeah, not yet. doesn't have the H yet. Abram, Abram goes. He gets there. Um, but he doesn't actually occupy the land yet. There's people living there. There's the Canaanites. There's these different cities. Abram is kind of this wandering shepherd merchant man. Yeah. Um, so he has no place to call his home. And then the last story we talked about was the famine in Egypt. Yep. So Abram goes down to Egypt and... With his, with, with his wife's sister. Yes, with his wife's sister. <laughs> so Abram, Abram his, whose name means father, Abram, Abba, um, and goes down with Sarah, whose name means princess. Or Sarai. Sarai, yeah, which means princess. Mm-hmm. She is... Uh, what was the What was the word? The Hebrew was like... The way he describes her, I remember you liked. Her. I'm like, I'm, you're like, I'm gonna have to use that on Christian at some point. I forget. I Just go back and listen to the episode. Yeah. But beautiful phenomenon was the oh, English wow, translation. Oh yeah, that's good. <laughs> Girl, you're a beautiful phenomenon. So Pharaoh is gonna see that you're a beautiful phenomenon, and he's gonna want you, and so he's gonna kill me. So you're you're my half sister. Just pretend like you're my whole sister, and we're not married. Right. <laughs> so the idea is like, if I'm your husband, he's gonna kill me so he can marry you, but. I'm and what, what's implied that's not said is tell him that I'm your brother so he doesn't kill me and then he'll still marry you. Yeah. And, but they don't go into detail about that in the story, yeah. but that's implied. And so we talked about the, the kind of the shady side of Abram. Right. He's kind of pimping out his wife. He's pimping out his wife for his own sake, yeah. kind of being a coward. Yeah. And also he's kind of disbelieving the promise at that point. Yeah, he's like, well, God's not going to protect me from this, so I need to come up with a plan. Mm-hmm. But Yahweh steps in, gives Pharaoh a dream, and Pharaoh's like, "Hey, man, what's up? <laughs> like, why did why did you not tell me this? I'm I'm not going to kill you over your wife." Yeah. And uh, so what we see is that the feminines and Pharaoh, for some reason, gives Abram a plethora of wealth and sends yeah. him back up to the promised land. Because he was scared. He was scared that like this God was going to kill him. Yes. And then we also talked about how that paralleled the the starting with the Joseph story through the Exodus. Yeah. Because then you have um, uh, the, the the people of Abraham. In this case, it was Abraham himself in Egypt who came down originally because of a famine. Mm-hmm. That's when Jacob also takes the Israelites down to Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some strife. There's some things that happen with visions. In this case, this pharaoh is a little less hard-hearted yeah. than the than the, the pharaoh we're, we're going to encounter when we get into Exodus. But the, the people of Abraham leave with possessions and yep. go back into the promised land. Um, and that's where we're going to pick up when we read our scripture today. Awesome. Is that everything that we got covered, I think? Yes, for the most part. I think we did pretty good at recapping that. Awesome. So we're going to keep all this in mind um, as we read um, our scripture for today. Genesis chapter 13, verse 5, all the way through Genesis 14. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not support them, so as to live together, because their possessions were so many that they were not able to live together. And there was a quarrel between the herdsmen of the livestock of Abram and the herdsmen of the livestock of Lot. Now at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, 
Please, let there not be quarreling between me and you, between my shepherds and your shepherds, for we men are brothers. It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you want what is on the left, then I will go right. If you want what is on the right, I will go left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the whole plain of the Jordan, that all of it was well-watered land. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and so they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot settled in the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were extremely wicked sinners against Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are to the north, and to the south, and to the east, and to the west. For all the land which you see I will give to you, and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth, which, if anyone were able to count the dust of the earth, your descendants would be so counted. Arise, go through the length of the land and through its breadth, for I will give it to you. So Abram pitched his tent, and he came and settled at the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron. And there he built an altar to Yahweh. And it happened that in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elasar, Kodorlaomer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goim, made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, and Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined forces at the valley of Siddim, that is, the sea of the salt. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and Amim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is at the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they took up battle position in the valley of Siddim with Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. So they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they left. And they took Lot, the son of the brother of Abram, and his possessions, and left. Now he had been living in Sodom. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. And he was living at the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. They were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative was taken captive, he summoned his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit up to Dan. And he divided his trained men against them at night, he and his servants. And he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions. And he, was, and he also brought back Lot, his relative, and his possessions, and the women and the people as well. After his return from defeating Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the valley of the king. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of El Elyon. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by El Elyon, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave to him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but the possessions take for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to Yahweh, El Elyon, maker of heaven and earth, that neither a thread nor a thong of a sandal would I take from all that belongs to you, and that you might say, I made Abram rich. Nothing besides what the servants had eaten and the share of men who went out with me will I take. Let Honor, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Give it up for David for having to say all these things. <laughs> yeah, I apologize to the 
people who originally spoke this language and uh, made yeah. those names because I probably butchered them. Shout out to Ketterleomer. <laughs> Ketterleomer. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to talk to Kristen. She might like that name for our next son. Oh, okay. Is he going to go like Keto? Is he going to go by Keto? Yeah. Or is it like Ked? Ked. Or Leomer. <laughs> the Leomer. I think, I think you should have nine kids. And name them all Ked. Uh, I think you need Amraphel and Arioch and Kato Leomer and Tidal. Some of these just really roll off the tongue. Bera, Shave Curiathium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, first, I, like reading through, I'm like, okay, classic like Hebrew way of saying stuff. Like you say something and then you say it again at the end of a sentence. Like, and then you say it again. <laughs> yeah, and you say it again. Like, what was it? Uh... Let's see. I think I have five. I don't know. I can't find it. But just like a classic way of, of saying stuff of like, you know, like these people were arguing in the land. And so they had to make a decision on what to do because these people were arguing mm-hmm. in, the in the land. land. Just like, you know, very <laughs> repetitive structure. Um, Which we find very, we could find grating in our modern culture. Yeah, for sure. And then, like, getting to the part about all the kings battling, it was a little bit hard for me to follow the narrative because I had so many names, you know? Good, <laughs> I'm glad you did, because it was like, this king and this king and this king and this king, they went out to battle against this king of this place and this king of this place and this king of this place, and this is where they battled. And then it repeats all the kings again. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of like, well, like, who was fighting who? <laughs> yeah. So let's let's try to make sense of this. All right. So let's remember how the the last story ended before we jumped down was the story of of Abram and Egypt. Yep. He leaves Egypt with many possessions. Yep. So we don't know how much Abram had as ter- in terms of wealth before the Egypt story, but we know now that Abram is a very rich man. Yes. He has a lot of stuff. <laughs> I think it. What does it say with him? Now Abram was very. This is a. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 2. Now, Abram was very wealthy in livestock and silver and in gold. Um, And so he's back up in the promised land. So um, having a lot of sheep is great, but that also means that it's harder to feed. Yeah, because you need land to feed all the sheep and livestock, so like cattle, um, which like cows, I would imagine, eat a lot of grass, so... I guess they had so much stuff that like one place wasn't gonna be able to yes be enough for all of them yeah. they had to split up yeah, yeah. so I, I live i grew up in the country and there was a cow farmer that lived across from me and every month or so he had to move all the cows to a new pasture to, yeah. to allow grass and for the sustenance to grow back up so i don't know what the numbers are regardless uh, it, it seems to be that Abram and Lot seem to be very closely confined right now. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't so much say that Abram and Lot have trouble with each other. It says that their herdsmen are, yeah. having, are having. So so something we need to remember in terms of this is that Abram was not just a lonely man wandering around the desert with just his wife. Right. It would yeah. have been like a caravan. Right. So like Abram's the head. He's the CEO, and then he has this whole company of people mm-hmm. following him around. So they would set up like a town of tents, essentially. Yeah. Or um, he would probably exchange food. He would exchange silver, gold, incense, spice, yeah. trade cattle, all those sorts of things. Um, and so they're back in the promised land, and the struggle here is what happens if Abram leaves? If Abram leaves. So they're in the promised land already. Okay. Now, Abram's actually being really faithful here in contrast to the last mm-hmm. story. He's actually, he's pretty much trusting God on this because he says, hey, if you, if wherever you go, I'll, I'll let you have your space. Yep. And, and I'll leave you be. But he gives Lot the choice, which as the senior official or the CEO of his company, he could have just been like, hey. You, I'm taking this. I'm taking this. You go. And um, it's really interesting when he says, if you go left, left and north are the same word in Hebrew. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Left and and north are the same word. And it can also mean um, unprofitable. 
Hmm. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting word to be used for all those things. Mm-hmm. And then, so Lot um, uprooted and he moves eastward. Mm-hmm. So we get the, Which is kind of the idea of like moving east away from mm-hmm. God, away from the garden. Yeah. Which I think like Abram and Lot are kind of this... Um, I think you can find this throughout the Old Testament. Well, especially in Genesis, like um, two brothers and one represents more of like the enlightened spiritual person or the the part of humanity that is like facing towards God, seeking that. And then the other uh, brother representing like just like the carnal nature of like just pursuing like worldly things, not really focused on the creator mm-hmm. and so you see that with Abram and Lot because it's like this if one represents each of that aspect they have to split up because mm-hmm. Abram is on this journey towards the promised land towards God he has to leave Lot because <laughs> Lot is like representing this other nature mm-hmm. that kind of has to die and I think we see that with um, like we'll see it later with um, uh, Isaac and no who? Isaac and Esau uh, yeah, yeah no Jacob and Esau Jacob and Esau yeah, because it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the whole plain of the Jordan and all that was well watered. So he, yeah. He sees the better land. Yeah. And um, it says it looks like the Garden of Yahweh. Yeah. Um, and like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. So it's like he was going by what his eyes could see, not by the promise mm-hmm. of God. Yeah. And, and a little side note, I think... I don't think you can physically, I don't think we'll physically ever find the Garden of Eden, but I think narratively within the biblical narrative, I think the promised land is connected to Eden Yeah, somehow. Probably. Um, so, so Lot leaves. So, so Abram has left it up to Yahweh to decide, am I going to keep the promised land or am I going to move on? Yeah. Um, and so um, this great book, which is called the Pentateuch as Narrative, by John Selhammer, he makes the case that um, this is a big conflict between the powers of promise, it's powers of promise versus scarcity mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and Abram in this is rejecting scarcity. Yeah, because he's, if he had just a scarcity mindset, it's like, well, I need to take the promised land now because if I don't like I'm gonna lose it Mm -hmm. but the power of promise is it's gonna happen Mm -hmm. and I just trust that Mm -hmm. and then um, kind of last on this there's not a whole lot of meat to this little section but it kind of leads into the next story Um, that Abraham essentially gets blessed three times in the Genesis narrative Mm -hmm. and all three come when he's willing to separate so the first one comes when he's living in Ur, and Yahweh says, you need to leave the nations and, and head to the promised land. Yeah. So then he's willing to leave the promised land. And then um, now he's willing to separate with Lot, and the immediate story that follows that was Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. Yeah. So he's willing to separate. And then the final story when we get to it is um, Isaac and Abraham on the mountain mm-hmm. when he's willing to separate from his son. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really good. And then like the kind of, I feel like the metaphorical thing we can take away from that is like for each one of us, for us to receive and walk in like the promise that we have in our lives like what do we need to separate ourselves from mm-hmm. to receive that blessing which is really hard yeah because um, I mean I think I mean you're a family man hearing that you'd have to separate from your family to receive a promise would be near impossible for yeah. you I'd imagine <laughs> sure yeah and uh, not that that's being asked of you no, but and like I don't think that ever would but I feel like the like you know he had to separate from his father from his home from what he knew from his comfort zone and I feel like that's something that a lot of people can relate to I feel like that's something that I can relate to like I feel like I had to separate from the patterns that I was in the comfort of you know people that I was around I had to separate myself to be able to like receive what God had for me Mm. yeah yeah it's one of those eternal truths I feel like yeah for sure 
Um, one little last interesting note before we move on to chapter 14. Um, in verse 18, it says, And Abram pitched his tent, um, and he came and settled at the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron. And there he built an altar to God. So kind of two things. Mamre comes from the word mir, which means to feed on the fat of the land. Mm. So well-pastured yeah. area. And I think I was just learning about this in the class that these oaks were like the biggest trees that people had in their mind at this time. Well, like you're in the desert, so a tree is a very, that's a symbol of life in the middle of not a lot. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's uh, Genesis is really the only book of the Old Testament where you see trees kind of take on this sacred element because I think there's a later element of trees becoming like worship themselves. And mm-hmm. then so the Israelites kind of separate themselves from that. Yeah. But it is interesting in Genesis, like kind of pre, like the super organized religion set of things. Mm-hmm. That, that was a big thing. And then Hebron is going to be very important in the coming books. Yeah, because um, Hebron, before David took Jerusalem, becomes the center of of Israelite worship mm. for a long time, and um, it says here that's where Abram builds his his altar to Yahweh. Yeah, so it's kind of like a foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. All right, so the next part is we're going to talk about the the conflict that arises in chapter fourteen, and as David said, um, and I felt the same way when I read it at first, was like, okay, I kind of get what's going on. Like, I see these names, I know these two battles are like these two groups are fighting, right. but like, it's hard to visualize. Yeah, I know there's so there's four kings against five kings, and I don't, I, I'm sure there has to be something like maybe the allies were all like close together in mm-hmm. geography and stuff, but actually not. Uh, so, so I, when I made the chart, I, I was making some. Uh, there were some interesting things. So the four kings were Amraphel from Shinar. So first things first, where, do, where was the last time Shinar was mentioned? I don't remember. So it says, I think in chapter 10, that the people moved east to the valley of Shinar, and there they built the Tower of Babel. Oh, okay. So Shinar was where the Tower of Babel was. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, so Shinar is essentially Babylon right. all over again. Now, They're what, the bad guys. Yeah. What's interesting is that at the beginning of chapter 14, Amraphel, king of Shinar, um, is the first one mentioned. Mm-hmm. But as you read through the rest of the chapter, who was the big bad, it seems to be? Because you read his name like six or seven yeah, times. Yeah, Kedor Laomer. Yeah, Kedor Laomer. And so I think the Bible's making this real interesting point to say, hey... Babylon's essentially connected with this, mm-hmm. even though we know that the big king yeah, was Cato Lamor. Right. It's just kind of continuing that thread of Babylon being the mm-hmm. image of corruption. Yes. So now these four kings were all either from areas of Mesopotamia or Anatolia. I know exactly where, the, where that is. <laughs> Mesopotamia would be like modern-day Iraq, and then Anatolia is Turkey, okay. Asia Minor. And these, um, the the five kings are kings from Canaan, Canaan area. Okay. So and kind of like Dead Valley, like Dead Sea region. Okay. Are there like good and bad guys in this story? Or are they all just, it's just kings fighting? I think it's just kings fighting. Because like Abraham's kind of outside the story at first, which yeah. is the interesting thing. It's, uh, I think... I've, I've read a couple of commentaries on this now, and pretty much everybody said, yeah, this is the most enigmatic, like, confusing story within the Genesis narrative. Yeah. It seems to come out of nowhere, because it's like, here's the story of Aram and Lot separating. Right. Lot takes his stuff to Sodom, which I guess we didn't really talk about that, but it's already kind of foreshadowing Lot as a character, because it makes very clear that, hey, like, Sodom is wicked. Of course, yeah, and, and even in the in the story... So either, you know, when this story was compiled, there was already the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that people were familiar with, um, because it says in verse 10 of chapter 13, this was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So they're assuming that if you're reading this, like, you know that Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So either that story was already floating around, and then when the people wrote chapter, you know, 13, or they just added it in at a later point. But, like, you're supposed to know that, hey, 
this is the place that God ends up destroying. It's a bad place, so mm-hmm. just take note of that. <laughs> yeah, and and so it, you you start wondering like what is what is the connection between fourteen and and thirteen? So it's literally like because remember chapter breaks are arbitrary. This would have right. been just one scroll. So think about it without chapter breaks. You go from, so Abram pitched his tent and he came and settled at the Oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron. And there he built an Auroray. And it happened that in those days that Amra fell. Right, right. It seems like very stream of conscious. Yeah. Um, so, and then Abram doesn't even enter into the picture until after all this. Right, when he finds out that Lot was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. So, so a couple of other things. So... Um, Mesopotamia and Anatolia, these were areas that were the powers at the time. Mm-hmm. That was where a lot of empires were. There was more resources, there was more agriculture, there was more rivers. Okay. And so they were able to grow bigger societies. Um, and then Canaan was a lot rougher. Mm-hmm. It was more survival rating. Yeah. That sort of thing. Okay. And so, um, etymology, especially with Hebrew, is something that I find really interesting. Of just like, what do what do words mean? Mm-hmm. And so I did a little digging, and all but two of these kings, we don't know the etymology for mm-hmm. at all. We have no idea. Doesn't mean they don't mean anything. Yeah, we just don't know. But if you go to the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, we don't know what Sodom and Gomorrah are, but we do know what the names of their kings mean. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this is going to be important too, just to remember, um, all these are, are in the Hebrew are called Meleks. They're all called Meleks? Meleks. That means king. Or ruler. Ruler, okay. But the word translated as king mm-hmm. is Melek. Yeah, so let's go ahead and get our idea of like European king with like this crown. Right, right. And like sits on a throne in this like grand palace. Like that's not what they're talking about here. No, we would probably think more of... I'm trying to think of, like, is there a movie that would better represent what... Yep. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Well, I guess, like, people probably have pictures of, like, Native American tribes mm-hmm. with, like, a chief. Yeah. Whether, I don't know... I The only... Because I feel bad because the only conception I really... and like The big feather. Have, the big feather. Yeah, hat. it's just, like, from movies and stuff. I don't really have a good understanding of, like, the actual history of what Native American tribes, how they operated. But I think we have this picture that's given to us from like movies and books and stuff that you know you had like a group of people who were like considered a tribe and then you had like the person who was in head at head like the the chief and they didn't have like a big palace or anything because you know they were kind of like a agricultural community maybe like hunted and stuff and had to defend themselves from neighboring tribes but i think that is more the picture of what they're saying here with kings not like each king had their own palace and armies and stuff but they were the head of a tribe of people mm-hmm. war chieftains yeah um, so these were these were probably the men who other men would follow into battle. Just so, just the natural leader yeah. of these things. They just at the front with their sword out, like let's go. Mm-hmm. And so um, the king of Sodom, his name is Bera, and that just means evil. In oh, Hebrew. nice, very straightforward. So their king is just named evil. Yeah. Um, Which in the Hebrew would have been funny reading it because it would just be like, and then there was evil, the king of Sodom. Sodom. Yeah, um, and then Bersha, which could mean wrong or it could mean guilty. Mm. So these are the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the only two names that we know for sure what those names yeah. mean. So they're telling you that like these places were ruled by those like spiritual principles of evil and corruption. Yes. Yeah. Really interesting, which also just speaks to the mythic quality of, of Genesis especially. Yeah. So, so then it gets kind of confusing because then it talks about these two kings get a battle, but then it kind of veers off to the side. So I've got it on this chart here. These kings right here. So at one point, these were all allied together. Uh-huh. So these would have been like individual cities or tribes who all paid tribute to Cato, Laomer. Mm-hmm. So whatever Elam was, there's not a whole lot of historical data of this existing. But based on the narrative, this was kind of like the major city of which others paid tribute yeah. to. Like, the big, bad guy. Mm-hmm. And so, at some point, the Canaanite cities say, we don't want to, do, we don't want to pay your taxes anymore. We're, <laughs> right. We're going to fight over this. But it hints to an even larger scale war 
in general. So I, I think what the biblical authors are trying to say, um, especially to those reading it, they would have known where all these locations were because it kind of jumps around from like yeah. place to place. And they went here, they went here, they went here. Basically, what they're saying is this was a global, in their in their terms, right, global. Right. This was it's a, a global, world war. Yeah, it was a world war. So Cato Lamor is the chief king of some kind of confederation of um, tribes. So it says it kind of veers off and it says his coalition defeated the Rephaim. Mm-hmm. Rephaim are giants. Nice. Yeah. It's so <laughs> literally what all is just that they defeated the giants. That's good. And then the Zuzum and the Emin. And the Emin means fright the frightening people. Oh. So um, if we were to time travel and end up in any of these civilizations, we'd probably think they were all very frightening. Yeah, probably. Probably very intense people. But to say that the Yemen were frightening, it's like, what did they do? What was what was frightening? Who knows, about? man? <laughs> yeah, and then they fought in Shava Kiriatham, which means the wasteland village. Nice. So whatever, like, I'm thinking like post-apocalyptic, like atomic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like so, Mad Max. Yeah. So what what was what was a wasteland village back in ancient Israelite days? Was it just a ruined city? Probably. Just like they're like. Ruins and bones. Mm-hmm. And then they fought the Hurites, which means the bristly hair people. Okay, so hairy people. In the wilderness. Nice. So even then, you're kind of seeing this, like, separation between, like, civilization and kind of, like, the outcasts of yeah. society. Yeah. It's like, oh, we fought the savages, yep. basically. Like, even then, we would probably call them all barbarians by our standards, but even then, they had this distinction of, like... Civilized, organized society versus a more primitive, yeah, kind of people. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, so they defeat them, and then they return to in Mishpat, which means the spring of justice. Oh, um, and they defeat the Amalekites and the Amorites and Hazazan Tamar, which is a play on the words of people divided into groups and date palms. <laughs> date palms, nice. <laughs> <laughs> So then, yeah, go ahead. The, the Amalekites, um, they are going to continue to be like the enemies of Israel and kind of represent like this like spiritual force mm-hmm. of corruption and yes. evil. Like the they, Amal- they pop up again yeah. in the story. Which there's a big debate on if these are the same Amalekites because the Amalekites, I think, are descended from – I could be wrong. They're descended from somebody who has not yet shown up in the story. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then it pulls back to the main war between these nine kings. It says, and then they met in the Sidon Valley, which is the Dead Sea. In the, fa- in the valley, in our translation, it says tar, but and then it was bit- bitumen is the mineral, mm. what it's called. And it's like this petroleum tar, and that was what the Babylonians would build their buildings out of. Oh, that's gnarly. So it would be, most of their buildings would be black. Which is kind of scary. That sounds frightening. <laughs> like you enter Babylon, it's not like how we usually typically view the Middle East, where it's like kind of these like brown stone mud right. type structures. No, it'd be like jet black, it's just made out of tar. This post-apocalyptic type vibe mm-hmm. sounds frightening. And so they don't give a lot of description of the battle. They just say, "Hey, there's a lot of this bitumen and tar." And uh, Bera and Bersha fall into these pits. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the only two kings they say fall into the pits. Yep. Interesting. Um, and so these Canaanite um, cities lose. They lose this battle. Yep. And then it says that um, Amraphel and Cato Laomer, they take everything from Sodom and Gomorrah. And which includes get, Lot. Which includes Lot. Which brings it back in to Abram. So Abram's just chilling by the Oak of Mamre. He's like, I don't want any part of this. Yeah, he's staying out of international politics right now. Then it says that um, the the fugitive is what the Hebrew word means. The fugitive comes to Abram, the Hebrew. This is the first time the word Hebrew is Yeah, I noticed that. Um, So there's two interpretations of what this can mean right now. Abraham does have an ancestor in the genealogy whose name was Eber. Okay. So some people posit that this just means that Abraham, the descendant of Eber. Yeah. But Ebri... And uh, it means to go one's way, to pass over, to move through. Yeah, yeah. In Hebrew. Almost like the wanderer. Yeah. The one with no home. Yeah. No. The nomad. And so it says that Abram was allied with Mamre and Eshad. <laughs> just kind of just throws the, like, it, there was no uh, lead up to that story. She's like, oh, by the way, uh, yeah, Abram, just... I, he was allied with people. Um, so... 
this is something that just came to my head. Was Abram technically a Melek? I guess, yeah, because he had people under him. Hmm. Right? But he didn't really have a city. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, I don't know. Is, do you have to have a city to be a Melek? I don't know. Yeah. That could be some more, um, something that we look into. So he takes 318 men, which is a very specific number. Yeah, it is a very specific number. <laughs> <laughs> How many men do you have? Not about 300. 318. 318. And this is the only time we see Abram as a war chieftain. I think we... I know when I was a little kid in church, like always, the depiction of Abraham was like this kindly old man. Yeah. Father Abraham. Abraham. Many many sons. But it's like, no, Abraham was probably a scary dude. I mean, you kind of had to be to survive out there. Like, I mean, you're wandering in the desert. Or even if you're, like, settled somewhere. You have still gold a harsh and silver. You have animals. Like, it was kind of a dog-eat-dog world, right? Like, you, some, like there'd be raiders who would come. And if they saw you with a bunch of stuff and they felt like you were an easy target, they'd come and steal your stuff. So you had to, like, defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I wouldn't want to live back then. No. <laughs> and, and so Abraham takes these men. And he pursues all the way from Hebron up to Damascus, which... It's close, but it's also very far. Yeah, with a herd of animals and... Well, I bet he left his animals behind. You think? Just let them chill? I mean, imagine he probably had people... He probably... The herdsmen probably weren't fighters. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know. I don't think... I think he would probably... If he was pursuing somebody, he would probably just go with the 300 and... That's true, yeah, yeah. If he he was going to pursue somebody. So he goes all the way up to Damascus, and then we get a little bit of um, Abraham being this great stratagem. He splits his men up, yep. and he does a night attack, and he gets Lot back. Um, and he returns with the possession and the women and children. And he returns to the wasteland village. Mm. And that's where he's met by the king of Sodom and yeah. Melchizedek. Yes, Melchizedek. So this is going to be kind of the final segment of um, today's podcast. Man, what uh, what a character Melchizedek is. Oh, yeah, is. I get so excited thinking about him. Because there's so much like lore it, mythology built around him afterwards. Is it just the mystery of Melchizedek that you find the most appealing? Yeah, for sure. Because it's so mysterious because there's nothing really said about him. I mean, there's a couple lines. But then like you get these references like in the New Testament. Well, it's interesting because it's like you go to see where he returns from defeating Cato the Lammer and the kings who were with him. Yep. The king of Sodom went out to meet him, so I guess he survived the tar pit. Yeah. <laughs> or it's a new king. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, went out to meet him at the Valley of Shabna, that is, the Valley of the King. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is interesting because there was no mention of Salem. Well, yeah, he wasn't in the war. There was no mention of Salem in the war. Right. At all. Now, Salem, our Salem, is the Hebrew Shalom. Right. He's the king of Shalom. Which uh, is later the name of Jerusalem. That's, Jerusalem. I would probably say 70% of scholars say that's what Jerusalem is. Yeah. There's some who disagree, but most people have landed on that's a, a precursor to yeah. Jerusalem. And whether or not you're talking about like the same physical place, the name, it's a precursor in name. Like mm-hmm. It's King of Salem, and then you have the city that is Jeru, which means... Yeah. Which is, I don't, I don't know. We're not going to talk about But Salem... It's like, yeah, Yeru Shalom. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> the same name. Mm-hmm. And he, he brings out bread and wine, which at that time was kind of mysterious. And he was the priest of El Elyon. You, did you like how I flexed with the casual Hebrew when I was reading it? I feel like we've had this conversation before. Um, but that was a flex. I'm, yeah. I'm very proud of it. Because <laughs> it says God Most High yeah. in the translation. But yeah. the Hebrew is El Elyon, which I feel like is important to... Yeah. So, so maybe let's talk first about how is Melchizedek understood now. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know because there's so many different... From the from the Christian perspective, I guess. Yeah, I think... I mean, okay. He's in Hebrews. Yes, he is. So he's a priest... And a king. And a king. Yes, priest and a king. And he is devoted to the creator. Because remember back then, it's a polytheistic world. There's many gods, but there's one main... Not main, but one god that is above all the other... It'd spirits. be like Zeus and Olympus or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like... There's a bunch of gods, spiritual beings, whatever you want to call them, but Yahweh is the spiritual being that is supreme and the originator of all the other supreme, or all, all the other spiritual beings. So, by so Abram knows him as Yahweh. Um, Melchizedek uses the name El Elyon, which is like the god of gods, in a sense. 
And L was also the name of the chief Canaanite deity. Yep. Yeah, yeah, L was like... It's even, in, it's even in the word Elohim. Yeah, it's like the word for God, <laughs> the name of God. So Melchizedek is like a priest and a king. He's a priest to the creator God. And um, he kind of like represents, I guess, what Jesus and like Christians are stepping into. Like that's kind of how what God designed us to be in the earth is rulers and mm-hmm. priests. Rulers in the sense that well, let's do priests first. Priests in the sense that we commune with the heart of God and like mm-hmm. the spirit of God dwells in us and directs our thoughts and influences our, you know, mind. And then rulers in the sense that we then, from that place of communing with the spirit, bring the, like into the physical world what God is thinking and doing. Like we bring that order and that justice and that mercy and the glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I would say that's that is the modern interpretation of Melchizedek. I don't think that's what Melchizedek originally was, but I do want to speak to the fact that I think it's okay that that's how we he's ended up being interpreted. Yeah, every time for sure. I mean, because I think I mean these are people writing these stories, but through the Spirit of God, and I think that like it was the people didn't understand the fullness of Melchizedek when the story was written, but now later having seen the Psalms, having seen the prophecies of like Isaiah, having seen the life of Jesus, like we can get a fuller picture than the people who wrote this even mm-hmm. had. Yeah. So Melchizedek is actually only mentioned twice in the Old Testament in total. Yeah. He's mentioned in this story and then he's mentioned in Psalm 110. Yep. Psalm 110 reads as such. Um, of David, a psalm. A declaration of Yahweh to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Yahweh will send out your mighty scepter from Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer in the day of your power. In holy splendor, from the womb of the dawn, you will have the dew of your youth. Yahweh has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, in the name of the manor according to Melchizedek. O Lord, at your right hand, he will shatter kings in the days of anger. He will judge among the nations. He will find them in corpses. He will shatter rulers of many countries. He will drink from the str- from the stream of the by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's gnarly. <laughs> so even then, Melchizedek in the Psalms kind of takes on this more like meta- metaphorical priest king. Yeah. Sense that it's like you will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So like the role mm-hmm. that Melchizedek had you will mm-hmm. have or like the qualities that he had yeah. you will have yeah by the time of Jesus there was a lot of interesting theories about Melchizedek yeah. actually you had Philo who thought he was like uh, Philo believed that he was God incarnate on earth just mm-hmm. appearing as a human yeah um, you had other people who thought that he had special knowledge of the future of like the story of Israel and where it was going mm-hmm. that sort of thing and then there's other people who are like, no, nope, he was just a Canaanite. He was a Canaanite king who believed in a Canaanite deity who said things that he really didn't realize yeah. what he was doing and to, were later understood mm-hmm. in a different light. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I know that his name is interesting, etymology. Yep. Um, Melchizedek. So you get Melik. Melchizedek. Melchizedek, yeah. So Melek, we already established, is the ruler mm-hmm. of um, a city. And Sedek could mean two things. So Sedek um, means righteous in Hebrew. And by the grammar, it's not king of righteous. It is my king is righteous. Mm-hmm. So my king is righteous. but Or righteousness. I think it's just my king oh. is righteous, yeah. I think, yeah, Hebrew grammar is like our grammar, too, I think. People who know what they're talking about with that sort of thing can say, "Right, this just yeah, it's just righteous, not righteousness." I don't know what that. I don't know how to look at it yet. But uh, Michael Heiser is who I looked at this sort of thing, and he's like a Hebrew genius. Yeah. Um, but Sedek was also a Canaanite deity yeah. whose name also meant righteous. Right, but it, but it was people worship Sedek. Because mm-hmm. you, you think about it. Um, now I don't I don't so was Melchizedek his actual name or was it a title? 
that's kind of the debate, and there's a lot of different ways that could be interpreted. Yeah, which I mean, it's kind of hard to distinguish. Like back in that time, like your title was your name sometimes, like mm-hmm. your or your name served the function of the title. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a gray area of like, is it a title or a name? It's like, well, it's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so, um, either way, he. Um, serves both the role as a priest and as a king. And Abram gives him a tenth of everything, which is where we kind of get the tithe from, but I'm pretty sure this is just like a one-time deal. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean... It's more I, like a tribute of, like, that was just what would happen after a battle, I would imagine. Maybe. it's all, But I feel like it's also, when they wrote, they com- compiled this, there probably was already... Tithing. Yeah, like a priestly class that would receive donations from the mm-hmm. working people so it's kind of like okay when you like you give to a priest because that's what you do mm-hmm. so like maybe that's what's going on here and, and the king of Sodom said to Abram give me the people but take the possessions for yourself and Abram said to the king of Sodom I've raised my hand to Yahweh God most high maker of heaven and earth that neither a thread nor a thong of sandal would I take from all that belongs to you that you might not say I made Abram rich mm-hmm. that's good so this is going to be really important to remember when we go into our next episode. So I kind of want to end on, on this now. So I've, I've, trying to been, I've been trying to think through it because he took the possessions from Egypt. But he, he, he's not going to take the possessions yeah. from these people. And I, I'm trying to reckon with that. Yeah, because his reasoning is that I don't want you to say that you made me rich like I want you to see that God made me rich yeah. is so it different what, because he's living among these people than when he was in Egypt yeah I don't know that's interesting or maybe it's just the fact that this is in the midst of a story where Abram has already been acting in faith yeah so it's like the riches that he got from Egypt I guess he sees that as God giving that to him but those riches also incited the whole conflict that got Lot into the trouble he was with so maybe he's like, I'm not doing that again. Like, I'm not taking riches from somebody. He's maybe. Like, it yeah. doesn't say. <laughs> yeah. But that's cool because I like that. Like, I, I feel like the principle he's talking about there, like, I want my life to be like that. I want, I want to, like, leave a legacy. But I don't want my legacy to be like, oh, like, David did all this great stuff. He was so talented. Like, look what David made. But I want it to be like David was devoted to God and like look how God blessed him. Mm-hmm. Look what God led him to do. Look what he did with God. I want to, I want my, my life to be a reflection of that. That's awesome. Well, that kind of wraps everything up for, for this episode. Um, yeah, Abraham, Abraham, the Abraham story is super fascinating to me. Yeah. And I guess... I think the theme for this whole podcast in general is going to be exile. So how does this story speak to the Israelite leader or Israelite readers for when the Hebrew Bible was finally compiled together as yeah. a set of scrolls? How would this story speak to their situation? Yeah, I guess it's a story of God working out his promise through humans who fail, but even through the human failures, God continues the thread to keep working. And so this is one story in the larger like narrative thread that is which like ultimately is led to the promise of like there is going to be a person who is going to bring you relief and rescue mm-hmm. and salvation and it's almost like these characters are filling out um, the way that Tim Mackey put it in our class was like he was talking about Moses but I feel like it applies to Abraham too it's like these people are filling out almost like a job description of like what that person is going to look like and the role that that person is going to have mm-hmm. so just imperfectly. Yeah, imperfectly. And so we see like qualities about Abraham that it's like, okay, 
there's you know a there's something going on here that is going to be embodied in the person to come there's going to be like you know then you meet Moses like there's qualities about him that are going to be embodied by the person to come so we see a lot in the life of Abram and then Abraham that is like prophetically pointing to the like anointed human who is going to come and so it's like continuing that thread of story mm. awesome thanks David thank uh, you it felt good to be back I've I don't feel like we missed too many beats. No, it just felt natural to jump right into it. Yeah, so uh, we're going to try to be semi-regular again. I think our lives kind of allow for that for the first time in a while. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, I think probably as anybody else who's listening, like this last, like ever since March, life has just been weird. and Yeah, things are different. And I, I'm, I'm even thinking of the story of like, and it makes me want to go through the New Testament as a Christian, and because I think I think the major point is always God delivers on His promises. Mm-hmm. So what are the what are the the big promises in the New Testament that we can look at now? And we don't have to answer it. This is just kind of rhetorical to, to end on. Like it's kind of just challenged me to think what are the what are the promises that we as Christians can look to these stories and embody in the midst of the craziness that's going yeah, on right now. For sure. So. Yeah, I like that. Just want to encourage y'all to do the same. Yeah, let's do it. All right, Hayden signing off. All right, see you guys. Thank you. Bye.